Hey everyone, welcome to the industry show. I'm your host, Nitin Bajaj. And joining me today is the one and only Maharaj, as I like to call him, Monish Pabrai. Monish, welcome on the show. Uh, Nitin, pleasure to be back. Uh, good to be with you. Thank you. We're so glad to have you back here. So let's start with the big question. Who is Monish? Uh, well, you know, living, breathing human like everybody else. So uh, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're very similar in many ways. I, I think there's not much difference between uh, different humans on that, that perspective. Well, as always, you're too humble, too kind, and I don't know if there is any similarities here, but I do look up to you and the work you do. So let's before we before we go deeper into what you do, let's play a little game. Uh, we call it the underrated, overrated, and uh, it's about different themes that impact us as a community, and we are looking for a one-word response whether you think it's underrated or overrated, and it's a game. So with that in mind, let's start with stock market valuations. Overrated. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about startup valuations? Overrated. Real estate prices? Overrated. Okay. Crypto? Overrated. <laughs> NFT? Uh, overrated too. What about the omniverse or metaverse? Again, I'm sorry, but overrated. <laughs> no, it is what it is. Uh, what about cash? Cash, I'd say underrated. Okay. And inflation? Overrated. Okay. And the great resignation? The great resignation, meaning? Well, people are- yeah, All these people, yeah, yeah. Um, underrated. Okay. All right. Well, that was fun. Thanks for playing along. Let's talk about something that's uh, more closer to you. And uh, we can do it one of two different ways. I can ask you about you know, the business, or I can just ask you something as open-ended as, what do you do for a living? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, uh, my, uh, my, my younger daughter, I think when she was mm -hmm. like about 10 years old, someone asked her that question, you know, what does your dad do? And I think she gave the perfect answer. So uh, she said, people give him money. He makes it into more money. He keeps some of the money and gives <laughs> the rest back to the people who gave him the money. <laughs> so that's what I do. That is so cool. And I 100% agree with that. But let's talk about a little more of the, the size and scale. But you know, what I'm personally interested in is the impact, right? I know you're in the business of making money. Uh, so we can talk about the size and scale, but also you're using that money for creating a lot of positive impact. And would love to hear a little more about that. Sure. I mean, uh, I think that... Uh... Basically, I think for, for most of us who end up in a lifetime with more uh, assets than we can consume, um, which, is a, which is a great problem to have, mm -hmm. um, 
you basically have only two choices. Uh, you can either in some way recycle it back to society uh, or you can pass it on to your gene pool or some combination of the two. And generally, uh, generally speaking, uh, large inheritances uh, to your kids um, will tend to do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, Buffett has a quote. He says that you're Jesse Owen's son, you know, the sprinter. He says, uh, you shouldn't be allowed to start 100 meter dashes at the 40 meter line. <laughs> it's okay to start at the 10 meter line, but not the 40 meter line. I mean, if you, if you ask someone to start a 100 meter dash at a 40 meter line, you know, you're not going to bring out the best in them. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, so I, I uh, was aware, uh, thankfully, very early on that uh, passing on large inheritances to my kids, etc., uh, wasn't going to be um, as helpful, might even be hurtful. And uh, so when you, when you think of uh, recycling back to society, uh, it's, it's a little bit, it's actually very different from investing in the sense that in investing, we get to pick our spots. You know, mm-hmm. I can look at a thousand stocks and pick two that I like and invest in them. Uh, when you're trying to so- solve societal problems, you know, the, Things that you have to confront are things like poverty, education, healthcare, environment, climate change, so on. So each of these problems has had trillions of dollars that have been spent against them. Uh, a lot of it not working, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they're not easy problems. So you don't you don't get the choices in investing. You're forced to confront tough problems. And so the rules are different. And, uh, and so one of the reasons I started early, I mean, I, um, I think Dakshana started about 15 years ago, and mm-hmm. started thinking about it 16 or 17 years ago, is that I didn't want to start thinking about these problems when I was, you know, in my 80s or mm-hmm. late 70s, because I would not have any energy. And uh, when I started looking at uh, nonprofits that I could support and, you know, uh, help and so on, I was very disappointed. Um, I uh, actually couldn't find any that um, ran the way I think a nonprofit should run. And, uh, and I did not want to uh, set up a nonprofit. I didn't want to do that. It's a lot of work. Uh, but because of the disappointment, I said, well, you know, I have to at least try. And <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, uh, being delusional, but at least I can try and then come back to giving it to somebody else. And so that's what led to the creation of Dakshana. And we uh, stuck to a few core principles. <laughs> and, uh, and I think these principles are very important uh, to... Uh, to have impact in in the nonprofit world, and the problem most nonprofits have is not only do they not follow these principles, they have no idea what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're kind of wandering the wilderness. And if you these are not my principles, I think they're almost universal principles. Um, and so if you don't if you don't follow these, uh, if you don't measure outcomes, if you don't care about like social return of invested capital and so on. Uh, then you're not going to uh, get uh, optimal results. 
makes sense. Now, if we look at Abrai funds and you know you have a couple of different uh, entities under which you run your uh, for-profit business, what would you say today is the size and scale of the operations? Uh, well, you know, we this is uh, uh, investing is not a business that requires a large team. So I have a, I have a very small team. Uh, we manage like 500 odd million. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, we basically invest uh, only in publicly traded equities and sometimes once in a while bonds and such. And I know you're, you famously refuse to have large teams and you, I believe, still do a lot of the work yourself. As you said, looking at maybe a thousand companies and picking maybe one or two. So makes me want to ask you, why do this? Well, I mean, I, I, uh, I do it because I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that uh, uh, I, I used to, uh, in the 1990s, I used to run a IT services system integration company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had started that company in my bedroom and it grew to about 170 people. And in the late 90s, I actually lost all interest in the business and I actually wanted to quit. Uh, but there was no one to quit to. I owned the business. And, uh, and, uh, and I went through this uh, testing with these two industrial psychologists in late in 99. And uh, for the first time, actually, when I was about 34 years old, I got what I would call my owner's manual, mm -hmm. uh, which is they uh, showed me who I was. And, uh, and one of the things that was very clear is that who I was was very different from trying to run this, this business with all these people, which was basically my job had become an HR uh, herding cats job. And, uh, and what, they, what they basically told me is they said, look, you like to play games, uh, but you like to play very specific kind of games. You, you don't like to play team sports. Uh, you are more of an individual game player where outcome depends on you and not a team. And you try to play games where you have some edge and you can win. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was just thinking of starting Pabrai Funds in early 99. And I explained to them what I was thinking about. So first of all, they told me to get rid of the business as soon as I could. Uh, which I did. I uh, I hired a CEO, and then subsequently someone wanted to buy the business, and we moved on. But uh, when I showed them what I was going to do with Pabrai funds, uh, they said it was perfect. And now it's been like 23 years, and uh, I am still, you know, tap dancing to work every day. It's great. That is awesome. Now I'm sure, you know, even with that comes some challenges. So as a business owner, what's the one big challenge you're facing? Uh, well, I mean, I think I, uh, I think, I think uh, adversity is just part of life. I think, mm -hmm. uh, I think there are no humans who don't encounter adversity and uh, our, our job is to, uh, face it, overcome it, and, you know, move on. You know, I used to have a 
uh, uh, I overdosed on Stoic philosophy a while back, you know, Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism, mm-hmm. and uh, which basically says that, you know, adversity is a blessing and to face it and overcome it, you actually become better, which has been my life experience. Each mm-hmm. time I've encountered something uh, which has been difficult, uh, it has made me better. But recently, I ran into uh, uh, the writings of this rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Akiva, mm-hmm. who uh, lived maybe 2,000 years ago. Uh, and, and I actually was, uh, uh, I had to do a reset on my mental models. So uh, one of the stories about Rabbi Akiva, which really kind of uh, uh, had an impact on me, was that uh, he was a very you know, renowned teacher and uh, he was the head of this temple and all of that. And these invaders came and they burnt his temple down. And as the temple was burning, uh, he was outside the temple dancing. And uh, so it wasn't that he was, I mean, the stoic philosophy would be grin and bear it. He wasn't grinning and bearing it. He was rejoicing. And, and so, in effect, basically, what you know, the, the poem by Rudyard Kipling, uh, treat those two imposters alike, you know, the good and the bad, treat those two imposters alike. And so, what Rabbi Akiva was basically saying is everything is transitional. And, and there'll be good times and there'll be bad times, and the times will change from one to the other. So you don't need to have your mood swings go on with the good and bad times. You can be in a permanent state of light. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was uh, a revelation. Now, I don't know if I can practice that, you know, dancing while the temple's burning. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a tremendous mental model to try to live up to. So I don't, I don't actually, when I look at my life and I look at, uh, you know, in the past, we've all had adversity. Uh, but when I look back in the past uh, at the challenges, uh, those very things that were difficult led to a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. And so how can you not think of it as a blessing then? True. True. And I remember having this discussion a few weeks ago with uh, someone we had on the show where we believe when we look back at our own uh, past, the best that I have perform is when I've been pushed to the corner when mm-hmm. I had but no option to fight the situation. Uh, you know, whether it was back when I came to this country and had to start pretty much from scratch or when I was looking at, you know, we had the recession and a few other times. When you look back, you realize that's probably when you did your best. Yeah, Absolutely. On the flip side of challenges come opportunities. And uh, if you were to pinpoint one that you're most excited about right now, what would that be? Well, I mean, I think the, uh, the thing that I think excites me the most is um, I've, been a, I've been a value investor for mm-hmm. I think now about 28 years. It's been a, been a while. Mm-hmm. And, and I've read a lot and I've, you know, interacted with um, the best in the world and so on. And I have, I've had certain frameworks and models uh, that I've followed, which have worked pretty well. And uh, 
uh, one of the models that I ran into recently uh, were these um, uh, these two books I read, uh, which talked about hundred baggers. Uh, they talked about stocks uh, that went up a hundred times or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've been a value investor for about twenty eight years, and of course, over that time, you know, I've uh, continuously been a student and learning. And I have a framework. The framework works pretty well. And uh, recently, I made changes to the framework. So even after twenty eight years, it's still mm-hmm. you know changing and evolving. And uh, and I think the the change is exciting because uh, uh, you know uh, there are different ways you can kind of go at investing. One way which is the way Ben Graham talked about is you buy a, a dollar for 40 cents mm-hmm. assets mm-hmm. worth a million for 400,000. For mm-hmm. Generally good things will happen to you if you, if you're able to do that. Um, but the, but the holy, uh, holy grail uh, of investing is not buying a cheap asset and waiting for it to be, you know, coming to full price. The holy grail is to buy a pie that is growing. Mm-hmm and growing a lot. And, and if you are able to identify uh, growing pies, um, then uh, uh, sometimes even a very expensive looking price um, <laughs> can be a terrific bargain. For example, you could have paid even 100 times earnings for Starbucks 20 years ago, and, or you could have paid 100 times earnings for Walmart 30 years ago, and mm-hmm. those have been great investments. And uh, typically a person like me, uh, you know, looking at a Starbucks or a Walmart, even at 40 times earnings would, you know, take a pass. Um, so I can't do that. You know, there's certain wiring I have, which I can't change. I, I can't really uh, pay up uh, for things that look really great. Uh, but but there, are, uh, there are some things about that framework where, um, you can let it ride for longer. So, uh, for example, um, if I were to invest in a great business and it goes up a lot and it looks optically expensive, you know, I may have bought it at 10 times earnings and it's got great growth. And now it's at 45 times earnings, for example. Mm-hmm. And earnings have grown, but it looks fully priced. Um, a few years back, I would look at replacing that with something else. Uh, now the question I ask myself is, is the business getting better? Mm-hmm. Um, and if the business is getting better, is the moat getting deeper, is the moat getting wider? Then what you can do is you can give it more slack. So you would still something, sell something if it got egregiously overvalued. Uh, but you would tolerate uh, things that were 20, 30, 40% optically overvalued True. Uh, because the idea is that uh, if you can capture the long runways of a few great businesses mm-hmm. that can actually get you to the promised land. And uh, I used to do that format of investing in the mid to late nineties mm-hmm. and uh, had done well, but then, you know, things got so crazy and euphoric with the dot com bubble. And I was, I thankfully was able to see the bubble before um, it, Went, to, went on to implode that um, uh, I went more towards uh, very non-sexy stocks and we did really well with that. True. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think in the long run, you're better off investing in great growing pies 
um, someone like me cannot pay a lot for those pies, uh, but I can learn to hang on to them. And uh, so that's, uh, I would say, what's been exciting recently. You know, that really plays along well into my next couple of questions. One is, as you look back in the rearview mirror, what is one thing that really stands out where you hit the ball out of the park and you're super proud of it? And then on the other end, something that did not work out as well and maybe became a lesson learned. Yeah, so actually this gets, gets to a point which I've been thinking about recently. Um, the interesting thing about life is, is that it has asymmetries. Mm-hmm. Uh, asymmetries are a really good thing. Um, so uh, what are asymmetries? The asymmetry is that uh, you embark on something where the upside is huge and the downside is non-existent or very little. Anytime you have that type of a situation, you need to go for it. And, uh, and so for example, one of my uh, mental models has always been that in a week we have 168 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're working at a job, uh, typically it's 40 hours. Then you know, you've got some commute time and whatever, you know, 60, 70 hours, 80 hours, whatever. But uh, when you look at the whole week, you have at least another 40 hours mm-hmm. that you could put towards something else. And uh, when I was employed as an engineer in my early 20s, uh, what I was doing is that I was interested in uh, starting a business. And, um, and, and, uh, so I was not interested in quitting my job and then taking a flyer because that's very high risk, but I could do that on the side. So I remember the first, uh, the first company we put together, there were three of us. I think I was 22 or something. And we met a few times. We had some, uh, a software tool one of the guys had built and we were thinking of you know, putting together a business that would you know, market and grow that and that sort of thing. And uh, we met probably for a few months and, you know, hacked around with things. And then the, in the end, nothing happened. It fizzled out. I didn't even probably lose $500 uh, with that venture. Okay. And I learned a few things, you know, and then a few years later, about three years later, I had another idea. And this time it wasn't a team. I was doing it myself. <laughs> and uh, this one, after about nine months, uh, had traction. And uh, so, once I had real clients and I had real cash flows, I quit my job. And so I switched from one path. So again, I mean, the thing is that I would have continued to, you know, keep testing this thing with different ideas being thrown up against the wall mm-hmm. till something hit. Right. And there was no price to be paid. True. And uh, in, uh, in, in investing, it is the same way. And I think that, for example, I remember, in uh, 94, uh, I was uh, taking a flight back from uh, Heathrow to Chicago, you know, coming back from vacation, looking for something to read. I read a book by Peter Lynch. I had never uh, done investing before, and I loved his book on investing, One Up on Wall Street. And I wanted to explore this area more, right? And I read his second book, and that uh, he was talking about Warren Buffett, and I read Buffett's letters and Berkshire Hathaway. 
And then it opened up a whole new world that I kept drilling down and reading on while I was running this IT business, right? And then I started on the side to apply some of those lessons, um, which eventually led to me uh, becoming a professional investor and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So I think the thing is that we, we have to pay attention to asymmetries. Uh, if I look at Pabrai funds, the total amount of capital that went in to start the business, it'd be less than $1,000, okay? There have been years where in a single year, I've made 70 million in fees, you know, not just in, uh, in uh, portfolio going up. So it's highly asymmetric, right? And, and, and the thing is that I think we have to always keep our eyes peeled on when we see these asymmetries show up. And uh, when these asymmetries show up, the downsides are limited. It's going to take some effort, but you, don't, you can't really lose anything. Uh, you got to go for it. And uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, and even, even I would say, even in the nonprofit side uh, with Dakshana, we did really well because we adopted these principles. In, in nonprofit work, you have to do high risk, high return. In, in uh, investing, we try to do low risk, high return. But in, in, uh, when you're doing nonprofit, you have to swing for the fences and you have to be willing to, you have to be very willing to strike out. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so we found a model that looked good and we hit hard against that model and it worked. And uh, if it had not worked, then we would you know, gather our chips and try again. And you gotta keep doing that. So true. Is there an example of something where you did not take the risk and, uh, you know, kind of look back and say, oh, that's a lesson? Well, I mean, I think that what, I've, what has happened is that uh, I'm, I'm sure there have been many, many times when I should have acted and I didn't. That probably is a long list. Uh, but I also, th- I also see a, a number of endeavors where I acted and it didn't work. And in some cases, there was a meaningful price to be paid when it didn't work. It wasn't, you know, zero. It was, it was meaningful. Um, but in looking back, that led to a lot of growth. So I just don't see a real downside. We, we obviously want to take these swings where the downside is very limited. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we take these swings. Uh, like, for example, I think in... Uh, 2014, I had this bright idea, which I know now is very dumb, uh, of starting an insurance company. Uh, and I raised about 150 million of capital. And I uh, bought a insurance company in Louisiana, uh, doing workers' comp insurance. And almost just a few weeks after I bought the business, I realized it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I realized it wasn't going to work. And, uh, and I uh, obviously was unhappy with, uh, and think how dumb can you be? And, but then I said, you know, uh, we have to put the toothpaste back in the tube, no matter how hard, you know, how hard it is to put toothpaste back in the tube. Have you ever tried to do that? Nitin? you know, it doesn't go back the same way it comes in. Uh, and, but, but I focused on that, focused on, so I said, what I want to do is I want to reverse everything. 
I want to get rid of the insurance company, get the money back and send it back to the investors and just finish it off. And that, that process is uh, been going on for seven years. Most of the toothpaste has gone back in the tube. The company got sold and all of that. And the investors will get all their money back, which is great. Wow. Uh, and uh, so, but it was not so easy. It took, it took effort. Uh, but I knew that if I had not acted to reverse, uh, then it would just be a downward spiral. It would, it would just keep getting worse. So there was pain. We took the pain. We're still taking the pain. Um, uh, but it doesn't feel like pain anymore. It feels just fine. I, I think maybe like a Rabbi Akiva, we are dancing at this point. So it's okay. Well, that's some amazing perspective to have uh, and an experience to to learn from, which brings me to my favorite part of the show. We call this the One Line Life Lessons. We'd love to hear, and, and you sprinkled a few of those uh, in the past few minutes, but would love to hear a few more of your One Line Life Lessons. Yeah, so uh, I would say that some of the, some of the uh, I really call them mental models uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to life lessons, I think. Mm-hmm. And when you overlay these mental models, you know, one on top of the other, you get what uh, Charlie Munger would call Lula Palooza effects. One plus one becomes 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really get ex- some spectacular things. The other thing is that none of us is smart enough to figure everything out. Uh, if we do well, it's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. There have been many giants that come that have come before us. I actually don't think I have any new ideas. I just have, I have collected ideas from others. And so one of the ideas, which I think, uh, one of the mental models, which I think has served me really well uh, is the model on cloning. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something uh, weird about humans. I still haven't figured it out. I've been a student of cloning for more than 35 years. Mm-hmm. And I've seen how powerful uh, cloning is as a model. So we don't need to come up with the great idea. The great ideas are already there. We can pick it up and intensely follow it. Uh, if you look at a company like Microsoft, it has never come up with anything ever on its own. Most of it has been stolen mm-hmm. or copied or bought from somewhere else. Um, so even uh, Windows was taken from the Mac and Word from WordPerfect and Excel from Lotus and Bing from Google and on and on, you know, and uh, they're one of the most valuable businesses on the planet. Same with Sam Walton at Walmart. Walmart never came up with anything uh, new. They copied their model from Sears and Kmart, both of which failed, but Kmart, uh, Walmart is still with us. Uh, so cloning is a very powerful model where uh, I found Warren and Charlie, Warren, Warren Buffett and Charlie Bunger. I saw their model. I just had to adopt it. I didn't have to figure much out. I just could pick it up. So I would say that there is something quirky in the human psyche, which looks down on cloning. We kind of think of it like copying. And that's the wrong model. I think we've got to pick up the ideas, no matter where they've come from, and uh, take it. So cloning is a very important idea. I talked about asymmetry. Another way to uh, mm-hmm. uh, talk about asymmetry is heads I win, tails I don't lose much, right? And in, in investing and in life, 
we always want to make bets where the downside is muted and the upside is huge. And periodically, the market serves up these kinds of opportunities to us. And so when we see this asymmetric upside downside, uh, we have to act on those. So an asymmetry comes up in many different forms. I told you it can come up when you're working somewhere and you want to start a business, you have asymmetry in the outcomes. It can come up when I'm looking at an investment. Uh, it can come up in many, many different areas. Um, it can even, even, even come up in, in uh, things like dating apps, okay? So for example, you know, if we were looking for a life partner uh, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, uh, the dating apps make it really easy. Okay, now, if you find someone incredible to spend your life with, what would you be willing to do to get there? You'd be willing to do a lot, mm-hmm. but the dating apps are very easy for you to meet 20, 40, 50 people. And if you had some filtering mechanism and you went on 50 dates, you would find the most amazing person and you would ride off into the sunset. It's asymmetric. Mm-hmm. Um, the dating apps do for us what we couldn't do before the internet. It would be much harder. So I think the thing is that these asymmetries show up all over the place and we just have to uh, look for them. Another uh, another model which is really important is the default to use with all humans hmm. is complete trust. So if you're dealing with someone new, okay, let's say I, I need a plumber for my house and I call a plumber. I'm not going to have any reservations about completely trusting the plumber. I will wait till the plumber screws me over Mm-hmm. Uh, and if he screws me over, I will never use that plumber again, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're innocent until proven guilty. So mm-hmm. the world doesn't run on contracts. It runs on trust. True. And when you have what I would call this seamless web of deserved trust, it's the uh, word Charlie Munger uses, mm-hmm. your life becomes really good. So if you have a team with full trust, uh, all the people around you fully trusted, um, your life's gonna be really good. And, uh, and basically don't start off with being a skeptic. Hmm. Start off with you know, lowering your, uh, your guard and saying you are completely trusted. Uh, so that gives you uh, another edge in life, which is uh, you know, uh, the, another mental model, uh, which has uh, been really very important and very useful is hang out with people who are better than you. So there's a gravitational pull. If we hang out with people who are better than us, we will become better. If we hang out with people worse than us, we will become worse. And so you have to be what I would call a harsh grader. So for example, uh, if I go to lunch with someone, right? I ask myself after the lunch, was that a mind-blowing experience? Did I really enjoy that? If I didn't really enjoy that a lot, I will never do it again. Uh, my dad used to say, to have a great life, you need one good wife and one good friend. So we don't need large volumes of humans in our network. 
we need a very high quality set of humans in our network. Even if that number is three humans, it's enough. So don't try to chase large groups of great people. They, they don't exist. Uh, you're going to be disappointed if you start looking for large groups of great people. But when you find someone who's a kindred spirit, who you can look up to, who you can learn from, and who you enjoy mutually spending time with, that's unbelievable. I mean, uh, uh, when I moved to Austin, I've been here about three months. What I did is I like to just spend time with myself. I'm very happy, you know, not meeting a lot of people. But what, what I did is I lowered the bar to meeting people. And uh, so I said, you know, I'm not going to be that picky or selective. I just want to see, because what I, what I was looking for is uh, if you remember that uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie, Unbreakable, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, mm -hmm. he's in this quest to find these unusual people, right? So he was, he was doing crazy things to find these uh, people who are unbreakable. Uh, my take is that if I widen the funnel, it is more likely that I may find someone amazing. Now, every meeting I've had so far has mostly not been repeated because they weren't what I was looking for. And that's fine. But again, it's asymmetric. What's the downside? There's no downside. The tea is still good. You know, the food is still good. Life is great. Rabbi Akiva, you're still dancing. It's okay. You're just not going to have that same dance with the same person again. That's all. So these are some uh, some lessons I would uh, I would say. And the other thing I, I would say is that uh, uh, when you have a passion for something, uh, whatever it is, go all in. Don't listen to the naysayers and oh this. Uh, I remember I used to be an engineer and I was taking a downward pr promotion, uh, actually a demotion going into marketing. And mm -hmm. my engineer friend used to say to me, oh, you're like, this is ridiculous. But I, I was interest, interested in doing that. It was the right move. And so I didn't do it. It didn't look like I was furthering my career, but I was doing what I was thrilled about. So I would say pursuit of passion with high intensity mm -hmm. is really important. And then I would say the other thing is that uh, to conduct all your affairs uh, with the highest levels of integrity. Mm -hmm. So what you want, the most, uh, the most precious commodity you have is people having complete trust in you. And of course, there are some people like me who just give you default trust right? Most humans don't quite function that way, but you have to earn their trust. And, and uh, the only way to earn the trust is with a track record. And uh, so I think uh, living your life in a manner where integrity over all else is really important. Munish, thank you so much for sharing those valuable mental models, or what we call the one-line life lessons. Extremely helpful. And Thank you for dancing with us again. We really All right. It was, it was fun. It was great. And uh, look forward to the next one.